Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Professor Stephen Feldman, a dermatologist and dermatopathologist who specializes in the treatment of psoriasis, and we'll be speaking about his career, patient compliance and patient satisfaction, among other things. Stephen Feldman obtained his bachelor's degree at the University of Chicago, completed his medical education at the world-famous Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina in the USA, and he also completed a PhD on the biochemistry of blood proteins at the same institution. He then completed his dermatology residency at the University of North Carolina and dermatopathology residency at the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC. It's a fine institution that I've had the privilege to collaborate with, and it's also in a lovely, lovely town. He served on the medical board of the National Psoriasis Foundation, and in 2019, he received the Foundation's Award for Outstanding Educator in Psoriatic Disease. He was also named the number one expert on psoriasis by Expertscape and America's Best Dermatologist 2022 by Newsweek and Statista. He is the author of over 20 books and numerous research articles and is the founder of Dr. Score, a patient satisfaction survey service. Furthermore, he's chief scientific officer of Sensal Health, an organization that focuses on, uh, on treatment adherence, and we'll be coming on to that as well. Currently, he's professor of dermatology and pathology at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, where he leads the Center for Dermatology Research. And, and I love this sort of stuff, when he's not at work, Professor Feldman keeps busy with his hobby, which is magic. So, literally, magic. So, abracadabra, we're excited to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Stephen Feldman. My pleasure. So, listen, before we dig into the medicine, please tell us about your involvement with magic. I adore prestidigitation. I even love the word and all aspects of the art. And my favorite place to visit when in Los Angeles is the Magic Castle, which is a, a private members club for magicians. I'm not a magician, but I, some of my best friends are magicians. Weave a spell for us, Stephen. Tell us about magic. Yes, I had the pleasure of performing at the Magic Castle, but um, it was just a lecture on psoriasis. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, magic is applied neuropsychology and understanding how humans perceive things is of great interest to me. And, well, how did you get into it? I started very young, uh, back maybe when I was about 12 years old. There was a magic shop near my father's office, and he brought home a magic trick, and I just fell in love with it and was, at the time, the worst magician on the planet doing magic shows for my Orthodox Jewish community uh, uh, and um, like something else of a Woody Allen movie. Oh, very much so. <laughs> and then I gave it up for many years because I um, have no social skills. And um, but then, as a dermatologist, I, I found myself back into it, and I found a magic tongue depressor at work. And now I delight my patients and people with it every chance I get. Oh, that's that's priceless. I actually had a resident who I trained. And she was a, a dab hand at origami. And when I'd interviewed her for our residency program, and I'd seen on her CV that she did origami, and I asked her to show me, and she was very flustered. 
that I didn't ask her about medicine or, or you know, her, her intellectual skills. And I said, look, number one, I, I, I've ascertained that you're honest because you've listed a hobby that you actually do. Number two, <laughs> you have amazing dexterity. And if you can fold a piece of paper like that, I can cert- certainly teach you how to take out a gallbladder. And number three, you were very patient and a good teacher. Uh, and she used to show patience, origami stuff, and it was it was wonderful. Look, I love people's origin stories. What inspired you to pursue a medical career and not a magic career, and specifically into dermatology? Yeah, so I think my interest in medicine came in part because of my interest in science, and my um, interest and, and my you know parents' background being Jewish, and they were very close to the Holocaust and for some reason, medicine was very important to them. I think, I think in, in our culture, it was in part driven by being able to do something that other people couldn't take away from you. And my mom put no pressure on me, really. She said I could be any kind of doctor I wanted. And uh, so when I called them up to, up to tell them I discovered dermatology, there was dead silence on the other end of the phone. And I talked to them a month later, they asked me, so have you decided what you're going to do? And I'm like, yeah, dermatology. And they were like, no, what, what about cardiology? <laughs> but uh, I, I had no experience with dermatology when I decided to do it. One of my colleagues in the lab had gone back to medical school and was describing her first rotation back, which was dermatology, because she didn't want to kill anybody after several years in the lab. And it just sounded perfect. And in part because of what you described, that you know, I wanted a skill that would be needed among other doctors. And it seemed like a lot of other doctors didn't know the first thing about dermatology. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I could do clinical stuff and be needed by the other doctors in the morning. And I could do my research in the afternoon. It, it just seemed like a perfect fit. Yeah, I also always loved the way that the skin, you know, could display manifestations that would imply a deep-seated pathology, whether that's... um you know, a rash suggesting there's ulcerative colitis or, or you know, finger clubbing or, or pitting of the fingernails or any of that kind of stuff. And one of my guests who uh, was also a dermatologist made the point that, you know, the skin was like um, a window into the body. If the eyes are the mirror, the window into the soul, the skin was a, a window into the body. Tell us a bit about your PhD and did the work that you conducted in any way influence your future research interests? When I was in college, I was thumbing through uh, the school catalog of courses and programs, and I saw there was an MD-PhD program that paid you to go to medical school. And I'm like, oh my, I'm doing that. And um, so I I got to Duke, and um, I um, had discovered economics in college as well. I, I, I like things that are based in principles, where you learn a few principles, and then you know everything else, like organic chemistry. If you understand the principles of how electrons work, you understand everything about organic chemistry. And at uh, the University of Chicago, economics seemed very similar. And I got to Duke, I was like, this economic stuff is going to be so important to healthcare. I want to do my PhD in economics. And they said, no, you have to do it in one of the sciences. And so I had had some experience in protein chemistry. I found a protein chemistry lab it was kind of interesting. And I got my PhD very quickly that way. And then later on, I got to do things that were more health economics uh, related. Right. So um, 
let's let's move into some of the conditions. You're an expert on on psoriasis and its treatment, and I know there have been some recent advances with various medications. And what have, can you, for the benefit of our audience, go over the big breakthroughs that have been in the past few years, and what are the main knowledge gaps that need to be addressed? Yeah, as as much as you've built it up, you've underestimated it. It's been amazing. I got to Wake Forest, and they hired me to do test tube research to be the the lab person. And we had a psoriasis specialist here who was fabulous, a warm, caring fellow. And he um, he left after I'd been here a year. So the next day I became the psoriasis specialist for three states. And um, we had very little to do for these patients. Uh, we had um, methotrexate, we had some topical steroids, and we had tar. We were covering people with tar. And um, we made people a little bit better. And the and, and the treatment of psoriasis involved a lot of hand-holding because people were suffering and we didn't have very much we could do for them, which was not good for me because I have no interpersonal skills. And, uh, you know, I got into medical school because I was really good at standardized tests. Fortunately, immunologists have made big advances in our understanding of immunology, and those um, gave us great tools like tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, interleukin-17 blockers, interleukin-23 blockers that revolutionized the management of psoriasis. So now I don't have to hold people's hands. I just give them a, you know, a treatment that clears their psoriasis completely up. It's just modern miracles. You, you could take an injection now once every three months with, I believe, no side effects and have completely clear skin going from horrible psoriasis that might have covered half or more of your body with red scaly lesions. Yeah, and I guess, you know, one of the things that really struck me was that in talking to people in your specialty, the emotional damage having a, a skin disease like psoriasis does for people, especially kids, and having to deal with persistent itching and how awful that must be. Can you go into a little bit about, yeah, you've got these great new immunomodulators to change the course of the disease. But what about dealing, you say you've got no interpersonal skills. I don't buy that for one second. You're, you're charming. How do you deal with those, that component of your specialty? It is a major component of our specialty. Uh, I'm fascinated by the skin because not just because it's the largest and most important organ in the human body, but, and not just as you were saying earlier, that it's a, a window on what's happening internally it reflects the inflammation in the body and, and all that. But it's also how, how other people view us. It's how we view ourselves in many ways. It's how we view how other people view us. It's, uh, it's really remarkable that way. And, and truly, I am, I am not you know, somebody who feels comfortable doing the hand-holding and, and handing the box of tissues to people. That's just not, not, my, not my strength. Yeah. So... Um... Let's change topic a little bit. You've completed some studies on the use of tanning beds as a treatment for psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. Can you give us some insights into what were the main results of that research? Yeah, so using ultraviolet light as a treatment for psoriasis and inflammatory disease, I think goes back millennia. I think if you go to the Bible and you read about them taking the lepers and sending them into the desert, I think what they 
what those folks had was probably psoriasis and they were getting ultraviolet light treatment. Uh, not that the Bible is, is not inerrant. I'm sure it's inerrant, but somebody along the way mistranslated some word from psoriasis into leprosy, I think, along the way. And so we've been doing light treatment in people's, in, in doctors' offices for psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, and other inflammatory diseases. Because ultraviolet light, we tell people stay out of the sun so they don't get cancer. One of the ways it causes cancer is to reduce your skin's immune function and, 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 the, and, it, and its screening for cancer. But for patients with psoriasis, we can utilize the fact that it turns down the skin's immune function. We, we also recommend people go out in the sun, but dermatologists hate tanning beds. And tanning beds are mostly ultraviolet A light. And the office light we use, um, the form of light we use in the office is ultraviolet B light. It's a more high energy photon. But really UVA light works too. If you send people to the Dead Sea, to the psoriasis treatment center there, as I understand it, it's so far below sea level, all the UVB light is filtered out. You're getting UVA light and people's psoriasis improves. And so we tested this. We, we went and got a tanning bed. We put psoriasis patients in it. And sure enough, it worked just fine. I believe tanning light is, at least in the United States, the most common form of light therapy people use for psoriasis, not because dermatologists recommend it most commonly, but because people try it and it, it works for many people. And when it doesn't work, people go to the dermatologist. So many dermatologists who don't recommend ultraviolet light treatment, their only experience with, with tanning bed light is to hear patients say, it didn't work for me because the patients who it does work for and who clear up don't go to that dermatologist. It's, it's a form of systematic selection bias. So you could see how systematic selection bias has this potentially this huge impact on people's thinking. So I think if, you know, if somebody has psoriasis and doesn't have good access to ultraviolet light treatment in a doctor's office, can't access a, a prescription home light unit, which is another approach, Going to a tanning bed may be very reasonable. Interesting. You know, talking about selection biases, um, bias, if you, if you caucus any given surgeon and ask them what their recurrence rate is for inguinal hernia repair, they'll tell you, I, I, don't, I don't get recurrences. I, I don't get recurrences. I, I, I'm great at this operation. I don't get recurrences. Yet if you look at the, the literature, about 16 or 17% of inguinal hernias that are repaired are recurrence. So there must either be one really bad surgeon in America or more likely what happens is I do your hernia, you get a recurrence and you go, I'm not going back to that guy, I'm going somewhere else. So it, it crosses all aspects of medicine and it just shows how the way we access data, we need to be a little bit more open-minded. Let's stay on tanning beds because, you know, you've also studied the negative effects of tanning beds, some of which are quite surprising. Um, addiction. I've read that it can be called tanorexia, or maybe I'm, I'm misrepresenting that. How common are these beds nowadays? And can you talk us through the various issues, uh, 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 you know, from the, the flip side? Yeah, for a long time, I think tanning beds were the fastest growing industry in America. And there would be one on every corner. And, and I think they're still nearly ubiquitous. You go to the gym, they may have a tanning bed at your gym. They got rid of video stores. I, I used to think that in... in in, in the smallest of towns where they don't even have a traffic light, there would be a gas station. And in that gas station, they would have video rental and a tanning bed. And um, some years ago, I attended a 
an investigative dermatology meeting and I was going through the posters and Dr. Mina Yar was presenting her research on pigmentation. She wanted to, I think, develop a pill to make people look darker. So she was investigating the science of pigmentation and she was irradiating skin cells in culture. And she was measuring the production of alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, which comes from a larger pro-hormone, pro-opiomelanocortin, or we'll just shorten that to POMC. And so she was showing that the POMC levels went up. And I looked at this and I went, oh my God, Mina, you just explained why people go to the tanning beds. Because when POMC is cleaved to alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, it's also cleaved to um, endorphin. That's the, uh, it's pro-opio melanocortin. The opio is is the endorphin. And so when you were, when she was irradiating skin cells in culture, they were making endorphins. And it just, it, it made perfect sense because I would see these women who go to tanning beds regularly and their skin is all leathery and mottled. And I asked them, why are you doing this to yourself? And they would say, oh, because it's so relaxing. You know, life is so stressful. I go to the tanning bed, you know, and it's so warm and I relax. And there's no industry of, of closets with with space heaters in them. It's not the warmth, it's the ultraviolet light. And so I went to the physiology department at my medical school where they study addiction in primates and, and, and other animal models. And I said, we've got to study this. We got to get some pigs or something and radiate them with ultraviolet light. And they said, ah, let's skip the pigs and go straight to humans. So we got two tanning beds, one with ultraviolet light and one, um, using an acrylic filter like you'd use over a painting by a window that would block ultraviolet light. So the two tanning beds looked identical, but one gave you UV and the other didn't. And we put people in both, we put frequent tanners in both of these beds, let them try both of them on Monday and Wednesday. And then on Friday, we let them choose which one they want. And they nearly always, 95% of the time, chose the UV bed because they said it was more relaxing than the other one. And so I think it's, it's pretty clear that this tanorexia phenomenon is real. It's a form of addiction. Later, I wanted to prove that, that it was due to endorphins. And so what we did was we gave people naltrexone before putting them in the tanning beds. It was like the one of the things I learned during my PhD years. If you wanna know if something is causative, you don't measure levels, you give a specific inhibitor and show that the effect is, is mitigated. And by showing that their preference for the tanning beds was mitigated by the naltrexone, we proved that their preference was due to um, endorphins. And beyond that, some of the some of these frequent tanners we gave the endorphins to went into uh, narcotic withdrawal, like they had nausea and diaphoresis. And so these people were truly addicted. Later, we gave our tanning beds to a researcher in Texas who did uh, functional MRI studies on these patients, uh, on people, on frequent tanners before and after the tanning and showed that the pleasure centers lit up in the brain with the, with the UV light. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm just reflecting, you know, if I go somewhere like warm, the Mediterranean or the Caribbean, when, when you get off the plane and you just feel that the sense of feeling the sun on your face and you feel good. Now, I, yeah. now I feel it. it's, that's fascinating. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, it explains why my wife, you know, she wants to go to the beach trips and she likes to go out in the, on the beach in the middle of, of the day when it's stinking hot and the beaches are crowded instead of going out, you know, in the evening when it's, you know, warm and pleasant and you can listen to the ocean. 
Um, I suspect the number of people on the beach at any time is probably proportional to the amount of ultraviolet light that's. And I think it also explains why older folks with their arthritis migrate from the northern places down to the southern places here in the United States, because I think it, the, the ultraviolet light helps their joint pain. Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely a real phenomenon. Absolutely fascinating. So. Um, switching topics slightly, I know that a lot of your work is focused on on compliance and adherence. It's a critically important topic. If patients don't take their medications, they don't get better. But bossing patients doesn't work. Telling people to do something doesn't work. So what are the perspectives that you've gained from your, your work on this uh, this subject? Yeah, I think my work in this subject pales, I mean, uh, the tan tanning work pales in comparison to adherence. This is such a critical issue in dermatology. Patients are, are their adherence to, especially our, the topical treatments we recommend is absolutely abysmal. Um, we actually um, put computer chips in the caps of, of some of the containers of, of uh, medicine without telling patients that there were computer chips they were recording the day and time they open and close the containers. And um, we, we had psoriasis patients use the, the, the topicals for a year, and their treatment was so poor, so abysmal, that the, the, the uh, British Journal of Dermatology let us use the word abysmal in the title of the paper. I believe that the, that the reason patients are not using the medicine is the doctor's fault. I got into this, as I said, because I had no social skills. I think my patients were the least adherent patients of any doctor because I was so bad as, as a physician at getting people to use their medicine. And I want to share with you very quickly the parable of the piano teacher that will explain why patients aren't using their medicine and why it is doctor's fault. My kids took piano lessons. The piano teacher gave them some sheet music, told them to practice every day, had a weekly lesson with them. And at the end of eight to 12 weeks, there was a recital at which my kids sounded great and all the kids sounded great because they practiced every week. You know what it would sound like if a new piano teacher straight out of piano teacher said, well, that's an inefficient system. They sound good because they practice every week, not because of the weekly lessons. So I will give them the sheet music. I will tell them to practice every day, but I won't have weekly lessons with them. I'll just tell them to practice every day and I'll see them back at the recital in eight to 12 weeks. That recital would sound execrable because nobody's going to practice until three days before the recital. And everybody knows that. Nobody in any business is going to take people and tell them, here, do this every day. I will talk with you again in two to three months. The only people on the planet that I know of who are using that as a way to get people to do something are doctors. Isn't that interesting? And your use of the word execrable is, is, is spot on. Having gone to plenty of uh, music recitals of little kids, and you know, you sit there beaming when it's your child, and you're looking at all the others and thinking, oh God, will they please stop? <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, so let's, let's stay on that topic, sort of, because you're, you're working with Sensual Health, which uh, focuses on patient compliance. I mentioned it in my introduction. Tell us more about that organization and your role there. Yeah. So I think this sense of accountability is, is critical to um, getting people to use their medicines. When you do drug studies, you bring patients back at weeks one, two, four, six, eight. And just like people floss their teeth right before they go to the dentist, those visits in the clinical trials make people use their medicine. Doctors 
are actually worse than the piano teacher I described. Doctors are like a piano teacher who tells people, here's a prescription for some sheet music. Take it to the sheet music store. I have no idea what it's going to cost you, uh, whether your insurance company is going to pay for it, how much paperwork you're going to have to go through to get this sheet music. But I want you to get the, fill this prescription for the sheet music. I want you to practice every day. Practicing may cause rashes, diarrhea, possibly a serious infection. But I want you to practice every day. I'll see you back in three months. And if the recital doesn't sound good, I will give you a second and maybe a third musical instrument to practice at the same time. So I, I believe we, we doctors have to create the sense of accountability. And I started by ha having my patients come back after a week and it dramatically improved their outcomes. And then I thought, well, maybe we don't have to improve, ha have them come back in a week. Maybe I just give them my cell phone number and tell them, you call me in three days. Let me know how the medicine is working. And that forces them to fill the prescription and, and they have much and use it well. And then they call and I don't necessarily answer the phone when they call. And, and if they, if I don't, they, they leave me a message saying, oh, Dr. Felma, so glad you didn't pick up the phone. I didn't want to bother you on a Sunday, but you're right. This medicine worked great. Then I thought, well, maybe, maybe we can bottle this over the internet, you know, and just have patients send us a message. We, we tested that and it worked great too. And I thought, I'll start a spinoff company. I started an initial spinoff company, Causa, that uh, didn't go anywhere. And then people from Senso reached out to me. Now, these people know business, which I do not know. And they're well-funded and they've developed technologies, um, medicine container caps and, and, and stands that will that record when people take their medicine and, which is, this is amazing for, for studying topical therapy, how much patients use because it, the, the, the cap of the container weighs the container uh, at, at intervals. And so uh, I've been working with them and um, incorporating their technology to better understand how our patients are using their medicine. It's, it's sort of amazing that we've been doing these drug studies, you know, and uh, across medicine, across all fields of medicine. And the only way we're recording how people are using their medicines is either with pill counts or diaries that are thoroughly unreliable. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it, that the the digital revolution has has basically changed the way so many things are done. You wouldn't dream today of going into a travel agent to book an airline flight. I mean, it's and you know people checking in and a day before online. Yet medicine is still doing things with you know, some Victorian constructs, quite frankly. Well, talking about sort of information and misleading information, Stephen, I'm speaking to you about a mile or so from where the first rumblings of vaccine hesitancy took off around the MMR jab, the mumps, measles, rubella jab, a topic that frankly has irritated me since day one. As doctors, we have a profound, almost religious responsibility to tell the truth um, and to seek the truth. You co-authored a paper addressing behavioral economic approaches to COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. Please tell us about that. Yes. So once I realized how poorly my patients were adherent, adherent to their dermatologic treatment, I've spent the last uh, roughly 20, 25 years trying to figure out how to get people to take their medicines. And, and it seemed like the principles that we've learned would be applicable to not just to dermatology, but to all areas of medicine, including vaccine hesitancy. 
And a lot of the approaches I, I use to get my patients to take their medicines, I, I steal from the behavioral economics literature. People are irrational in many ways. And so, for example, if I wanted a patient to take an injection uh, once a month, I wouldn't tell them I got a great medicine, You got, except you have to take it in, by injection once a month. I would tell them, I have a great medicine, uh, but it has to be given by injection once a day. And um, um, oh, Jonathan, did I just say once a day? Oh, God. No, you won't have to take it once a day. You'll only have to take it once a month. If I, if I don't mention once a day first, people's brains are comparing taking the medicine once a month to not taking the injection, and they don't want to take an injection. But if you mention once a day first, then their brain is comparing taking an injection once a month to taking it once a day, and they're totally happy taking it once a month. And, and I thought we, we ought to be able to use these same kind of techniques to address vaccine hesitancy. My favorite technique now for getting a patient to use a medicine is just to tell them one story about one other patient who did well on the medicine. And I, and I think this probably would apply to vaccine hesitancy too. A couple of years ago, I was trying to keep up with young people in a CrossFit class, and this was a big mistake for somebody my age. And I threw out a disc. I developed the most horrific sciatica you could imagine. I'm on narcotics. I, I'm in so much pain. I couldn't sleep. So I'm reading what to do for it. I'm reading up to date. And it says do physical therapy. I don't trust that. I want to hear that I can have a surgical procedure that will eliminate this pain immediately. So I, I look up the articles, up-to-date sites, and they prove that I should do physical therapy. And that's not enough. So I do my own literature searches. And, I, and, and, and it's clear. The best thing I can do for my sciatica is physical therapy. Then I came to work. And, and my partner um, tells me, well, I had a, a disc problem in my neck. And uh, the neurosurgeon gave me prednisone. I felt better right away. So on the one hand, you know, here I am, and I've read the entire literature and that has proven I should do physical therapy. And I have one anecdote from a friend who took prednisone. <laughs> well, I was on the phone to my gerontologist immediately <laughs> demanding prednisone. If you want a patient to, to you know, to, to, to do something, I think sharing with them single anecdotes may be the most powerful thing we can do. Yeah, I was, I did a session at the American College of Surgeons many years ago, and it was all about the use of evidence-based medicine to drive a particular decision. And one, one guy stood up after all the presentations and he said, yeah, he says, I don't read those guidances from the CDC and I don't like those, you know, uh, those meta-analyses and all that peer-reviewed literature stuff. I've got my experience to guide me. And the, the chap who was chairing the session said, I'd like to congratulate you, sir. In seven seconds, you put back the course of evidence-based medicine 20 years so i your story is really really telling so let let's let's sort of stay on this track you you've got an interest in in patient satisfaction what led you to create the patient satisfaction survey service doctor score and and give us an, an overview of that service yes yeah, so um Many years ago, uh, our, our medical center started doing patient satisfaction surveys, and it was very enlightening. Some of my patients said they liked me, and others said I wouldn't send my dog to that uncaring jerk. And jerk wasn't actually the word they used, but we'll, we'll settle for that. And I thought, oh, my goodness, uh, they have me confused with my partner, Dr. Fleischer. And then I realized, no, wait, 
no, they're actually talking about me because I'm just walking in the room, making the diagnosis of psoriasis, writing the prescription as I'm walking towards them and uh, handing them the prescription and leaving the room thinking I made the right diagnosis and prescribed the right therapy. And they th they're thinking I didn't even examine them or care about them. And, and so I thought this patient satisfaction information is very useful, but the way we were collecting it was problematic. I thought, well, let's just collect it online. Let's just create a patient satisfaction survey service in the form of a doctor rating website. And, and I created this. And again, I'm no good at business and, and, and this thing folded after, after years of trying to make it work, but it was a very inexpensive, convenient way to get feedback from patients. And, and we collected data from hundreds of thousands of folks. And we, we, we analyzed the data and showed that what patients, when they're talking about their satisfaction with their doctor, it's determined almost completely by whether they think the doctor cares about them or not. And so this has impacted my practice. You know, I, I open the door of the room. I may still make the diagnosis of a skin problem from the door of the room, but, you know, I introduce myself to people. I palpate their lesions. I ask them questions that I don't even necessarily need the answers to, to, to know what they have. And then I hand them the prescription and their outcomes are better because they trust me more. And, and, and that's my ultimate goal. That I think in medical school, they give you the impression that that your, your job is to make the right diagnosis and prescribe the right treatment. But your job is actually to get people well. And to get people well, you have to make the right diagnosis, prescribe the right treatment, and get people to use it. Actually, you don't even need to make the right diagnosis. If you actually happen on the right treatment and get people to use it, that's, those are the critical issues. Yeah. And, um, and, and it turns out all this warm, caring perception of empathy and, and caring. It's, you don't actually have to care about people all, to get them to use the medicine. Now, I say that flippantly. Peep doctors care about their patients, but that's not what determines whether patients use the medicine. Whether patients, whether patients use the medicine is determined by whether they think you care about them. And, and it, goes, it, 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 it goes back to the beginning where we were talking about magic. If you look in, in the magic books, it tells you, you know, if you pull out, if you, if you magically make appear a, a 10 kilogram bowling ball, but the patient, but, but the, the audience thinks it's paper mache, it's not a good magic trick. If you pull out, you know, a one ounce paper mache ball that they think is a 10 kilogram ball, then you've done something really impressive for people. And so we all care about our patients, but making sure that they realize we care about them is critical. Fascinating. So, um, when I was preparing for this podcast, as I always do, I'm reading all about you and came across your book, which I've ordered. I've not read it yet. Compartments, how the brightest, best trained and most caring people can make judgments that are completely and utterly wrong. He explores this topic as well. Tell, tell us about this book. And, you know, I, but don't ruin it for me because I, I have ordered it and I do want to read it. Yeah, this is... Um... This book was based on a, what turned out to be a controversial lecture I gave at the American Academy of Dermatology. Based on, on, on work I'd done, they gave me their highest award, the Living Good Lectureship, a chance to, to speak to the entire academy all at once on any topic. It did not have to relate to the practice, it, to, the, to, to diagnosis and treatment. It could be anything related to the art of medicine. And I talked about how... Uh, three three principles that cause errors in judgment. Principle number one, 
And it's, the, the, all three principles are related to the compartmentalization of people. Principle number one is when you're in one group and people in your group tell you something about people in another group, don't trust what they tell you. The, my example of this from medicine was that uh, in dermatology, we, we learned that the topical steroids we give to people with psoriasis and eczema will work at first, but gradually they stop working. A phenomenon called tachyphylaxis. And, and, the, and the brightest dermatologist on the planet told me the definition of this tachyphylaxis phenomenon is the more you use the medicine, the less it works. But then we did the studies where we put the computer chips in the cap of the containers and showed that patients' use of the medicine gradually goes down over time and they stop using the medicine. Tachyphylaxis isn't the more you use the medicine, the less it works. It's the less you use the medicine, the less it works. The most, the smartest dermatologist on the planet talking about the most basic thing in dermatology got it completely backwards because he was in his compartment drawing judgments about people in another compartment that he had no direct observations of. You need to make direct observations. The second principle is don't trust direct observations. And we've already covered this with respect to dermatologists' experiences of tanning beds, um, you know, surgeons' experience of their recurrence rates. I think this is critically important, and it's all due to this, this selection bias phenomenon that's as you mentioned, is pervasive. And then the third principle is the, is the most insidious one of them all. And, and, and it goes back to magic and, and, and applied neuropsychology. Two people can look at exactly the same thing and see totally different things because our perceptions are determined not just by what, what we see, but by the context in which we see it. And the best example of this that I gave was... Um, why veins, the veins on our wrist are blue. Um, people think, well, it's, it's obvious, Steve, it's the deoxygenated hemoglobin. But you ask doctors, well, have you ever drawn blood out of somebody's vein? Did blue stuff ever come out of anybody's arm? No, it's red. Um, and, but the vein is just a bluer shade of pink than the surrounding skin. And so your mind interprets that as blue. If you were to cover up the skin on either side, you would see there's absolutely nothing blue there. And so I won't ruin the book for you. I apply those three principles to, you know, to to the conflicts in our world, and I and, and I show how how how, re, how how the problems in our world are not caused by evil people, but they're caused by really good, smart, caring people who have terrible misjudgments about people in other groups. Fascinating. I'm looking forward to 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 reading it. I was looking down at my hand as you were speaking. So in another book you wrote, Will It Ever Go Away? You discuss common questions about COVID-19. What brought you to write that book? And what are some of the common questions it answered? I, I have to tell you, I write articles for the aviation press on, on health issues for pilots. I, I fly airplanes as an avocation. And I wrote a series of articles about COVID, including documenting my own experiences with, with the disease, which were wretched. Right. I, I had I was really sick with this disease and, and had some long lasting sequelae. I got death threats. I got death threats for promulgating um, a lie that it was fake news, that there was no virus. And these are these are pilots. I mean, you know, there were plenty of people who said very nice things, but there were it wasn't an insignificant number who disbelieved it. And these are people who are smart enough to be able to fly an aeroplane. So please expand on, you know, the book 
and what 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 were some of the questions you answered? I've yet to read this book. Also, it's also on order. Yeah. So as soon as COVID hit, it had a dramatic effect on dermatology practice, and our patients had questions. And and um, you know, my research team specializes in addressing the immediate important problems of the day. I I don't I'm not down in the in the weeds of test tube research anymore. And, and, and so we assign one of the, the people I work with to collate the data on, on that was available on COVID and make it available in a digestible form to patients. And um, I think the book, if, if you get a chance to read it, you'll, you'll, you'll find it quaint and historical because it was written early on and, and our knowledge of COVID changed so quickly over time. It's just dramatic. Um, why, why would people have those, those, those thoughts? Why would pilots think the way they do? I think, you know, the principles in compartments, you know, would have an effect. People are compartmentalized. They're, they're in their group and, and people think about, they only hear the things that their group is talking about. And there's a selection bias phenomenon and they may, and that, that may have a big impact on their thinking. And then there's the context in which they think about things. And if they think, if they are already predisposed to think ill of government or of people trying to control their lives, they may interpret, you know, what ha ha things about COVID. Oh, and the other thing that, if, again, I mean, if you look at your wrist right now, even though you know it's an optical illusion, that vein is still going to look blue. When you have an economic incentive to think in a certain way, the way it colors your thinking is extraordinary. So, you know, if if COVID is shutting down the airline industry, pilots are going to have an enormous subconscious force making them think that those people who are saying shut down the industry are wrong and are evil. Um, and uh, you know, this th these economic incentives affect our thinking. I, I in, in medicine. We dermatologists, if we see a precancerous skin lesion, we're going to freeze it. And I think it's in part because we get paid really well to freeze them. If, if the government said, you know, we're going to stop paying for freezing, but we'll pay you every time you write a prescription for a cream for these precancerous lesions, I think overnight doctors subconsciously, it's going to affect them. And consciously, they're going to go, well, now that you mention it, the cream is probably a better option. <laughs> and so consciously, they're going to think the better way to treat people is cream. But there's these underlying incentives because you're you're you consciously you're not saying, well, it's my vein is bluer than the surrounding skin. That's why I'm going to call it blue. No, your your brain just says it's blue. And so these these um, incentives that we have clearly affect our thinking in profound ways. Hmm. Um, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well. We've come to the last uh, question that I've got time to ask, unfortunately. Um, as we said, you're into magic. What if you could wave a magic wand and have three wishes to improve global health? What would they be? Well, uh, my first thought is, uh, number one, I'd wave a wand and, and make people adherent to their treatment. The second thing, uh, if the first one didn't work, the second thing I would do is I'd wave a wand and get doctors to inquire of the patient's treatment outcomes one week after starting any kind of new medical treatment, because that would make people be adherent. Uh, 
And then third, uh, global health. I think um, I would improve people's economic status because I think uh, health economics is at the root of a lot of health disparities. Yeah, access to care might mean many different things. It might mean just, there's a friend of mine who went to Liberia um, and spent a little bit of time there and he was about to leave. And as he was sitting in the Monrovia airport, he thought, huh, the only pediatric pulmonologist in Liberia is about to leave the country and he turned around and stayed. So yeah, access to healthcare. Um, I'm afraid that's all that we've got time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. I want to thank you, Professor Stephen Feldman, for sharing your expertise with us today, for all you've done for the science and practice of medicine, and all you're doing for patients. And again, I want to tell you, if, you're, if you don't have any personality or, 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 or social skills, um, I'm, 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 go, I'm running for the, I'm going to be the next Pope. So Stephen, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest. Thanks for having me. So folks, please check out our archives, subscribe for future episodes, and tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast, the EMJ Podcast. Until next time, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe, stay well, stay curious, and enjoy the magic. Bye for now. 